Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Elisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by my friend, Abdu Murray. Welcome, Abdu. It's so great to be with you, Lisa. Thanks for having me on. Great to great to have you on here uh, to talk about uh, very two very interesting topics that are not necessarily on the same page, but I believe they both have relevance and you you can speak to both. Um, just tell our audience just a little bit about, about who you are. Well, I'm Abdu Murray, and uh, it's a strange name because someone might say, uh, Abdu and Murray, what's the deal with that? How did you get a Scottish last name when you have that very Arabic first name? And the answer is my last name is really Murray, uh, but they changed it when we came over uh, to the United States. So now I'm Lebanese and Scottish. Uh, I am a former Muslim. Mm -hmm. I, I grew up uh, as a Muslim, uh, and I converted at the age of 27 after a nine-year uh, search into the historical, scientific, uh, philosophical sort of facets of religion, especially uh, the differences between Islam and Christianity. And after that nine years, um, I gave my life to Christ. I'm a lawyer by training, and I have been doing Christian apologetics um, and using evangelism, uh, sorry, using apologetics through evangelism um, uh, and uh, speaking uh, wherever um, the Lord will allow to proclaim the truth of the gospel uh, to audiences of all kinds. So uh, that's what I've been doing. And uh, I live with my beautiful wife and my three great kids uh, in the Detroit area. Awesome. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. And uh, we're going to be talking about something today. Uh, well, the first thing is karma. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's one of the most confusing topics for people. Uh, people use it uh, interchangeably with um, sowing and reaping. And... Oh. Uh, I think people are always talking about like that's your karma in 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 culture today. It's one of one of the most highly used phrases around spirituality is karma, and it is very very misunderstood, very misrepresented in culture. So I thought it would be good to to talk about the idea. So Abdu, tell us what is karma. Well, you've actually nailed it. Uh, which one of the problems is is that. Uh, true to most Western uh, sort of ways we import things is that we import things. It seems authentic, and then we Americanize it quite a bit, change it, maybe give it a little microwave treatment. And then uh, before you know it, it out, out, out it pops a little bit different than it actually started. So classically speaking, karma is a uh, sort of a law or a, a rule of uh, Eastern religious thought, specifically with regard to Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, and it's the basically the idea that there is a law of causality across different lifetimes. So in both Buddhism and Hinduism, there is the cycle of samsara, which is a cycle of death and rebirth, where every, every person goes through a cycle of death and rebirth. So they, they're born, they live, 
during that life, they either do good things or bad things. And those good things and bad things have consequences. And so those consequences for the good are good karma. And the consequences for the bad are bad karma. And they manifest themselves in the next life. So if you're a good person or you do good things in this life, that inures to your benefit in the next life. So you'll be incarnated into a higher station, maybe a higher caste in Hinduism or a higher form or a more enlightened person or a more fortunate person in the next life. But if you have bad karma in this life, it translates into a sort of maybe a lower caste or a lower station uh, or some kind of misfortune in the next life for you. And so karma is the consequences of your actions. Uh, the Dalai Lama, for example, with regard to Tibetan Buddhism, uh, he defines karma uh, in the universe in a single atom. He says this, that karma is the intentional act of sentient beings, all of which have impacts upon the psyche of an individual, no matter how minute, and the entire process is seen as an endless self-perpetuating dynamic. Now, that's a very fancy way to basically say that karma is an endless cycle across our lives. And then he says the chain reaction of interlocking causes and effects operates not only in individuals, but also in groups. So karma has a group effect. And it's not in just this lifetime, but across many lifetimes. And this is the important part. He says this karmic causality is seen as a fundamental natural process and not a kind of divine mechanism. In other words, karma operates almost like a law of nature. It's just a consequence of prior actions. There's no judgment in karma. So you don't have a bad life in the next life as a judgment for your bad deeds in this life. It's simply a consequence of your bad deeds in this life or your good deeds in this life and that kind of thing. So it's really just an operation of law. There is no sense of divine judgment. It just happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very different from sowing and reaping. Yeah, yeah, quite, <laughs> quite different because because sowing and reaping, you're right, that the, the essential idea there of sowing and reaping is it's multifaceted. It has the idea of consequence because you do reap what you sow. If you do bad things, bad things tend to happen. But there is an element of a moral impair, a moral sort of uh, substructure to sowing and reaping because the context is about what you sow, if you sow good or you sow bad, there is a, a sense of judgment and reward that comes from that. So it's not just an operation of law. It actually is very infused with morality as well. Um, but there's one thing that's interesting about this because Hinduism, for example, uh, is um, uh, malleable. It's, uh, it's an adaptable religious system. In fact, one scholar said that uh, to form a uniform theology of Hinduism would be almost an impossible task. There are only certain non-negotiables. Reincarnation and karma are among them. Um, so despite the fact that um, in Hinduism, for example, karma operates as an operation of law, what's developed uh, over time is what's called bhakti or devotional Hinduism. Uh, and in devotional Hinduism, and Stephen Prothero points this out in his book, God is Not One, when discussing Hinduism, in devotional um, Hinduism, you actually can work out or try to um, deal with your bad karma through a devotional aspect where you ask for grace and mercy from your chosen God among the many different gods. This is a development over time. That's not classically how karma was thought of, but um, it was thought of if you just did certain, certain practices like Jananda Yoga, you could work off your karma. It's all up to you. By doing good deeds, you can work off your bad. But 
there is a devotional aspect called bhakti. So I want to be, make sure we're fair about this, that it's possible that there is a sort of divine instrument in, in certain strands of Hinduism in karma, but largely it's just an operation of law. Mm -hmm. That That's extremely helpful. And I think reorienting for some people, because people, when they think of karma, they think of like moment to moment. Yeah. And I think it's very helpful to reframe and say, this isn't even something you reap in this life as it relates to karma. Karma is about a reincarnation in a sense. Uh, it's an aspect of reincarnation where if you were reincarnated, which we as Christians don't believe in reincarnation, mm -hmm. uh, if if reincarnation was an actual thing, that's when karma would actually happen. Is that That's a fair assessment, right? Uh, absolutely. In fact, uh, karma as an aspect of Eastern religion makes no sense. Um, it's, it's, in other words, it's rootless unless there's reincarnation. In other words, karma is a, is a law that operates across lifetimes. It can operate within your lifetime, but usually uh, it's seen as operating across lifetimes. So if there was no reincarnation, there would be no operation of karma because karma operates across lifetimes, whether it's in Hinduism or in Buddhism. And this is a big part of the Western sort of appropriation you're talking about is that uh, it's interesting because people often think of reincarnation in the West as this thing to be desired um, or cool or fascinating. Like, oh, you must have been a warrior in your past life or maybe you were a <laughs> queen in your past life. Uh, when the reality is in classical Eastern religion, karma is a cycle to be escaped from. It's not desired at all. It's meant to end is that in Hinduism, we become one with the Brahman, the sort of impersonal absolute of the universe. And in classical uh, uh, Buddhism, as Buddha taught it, is that we are to become extinguished, to become nothing. So we work off our karma until we're nothing. So in Hinduism, we work off our karma uh, until we're enlightened uh, and become one with, one with the impersonal creative force called the Brahman. And in Buddhism, we do it until we become nothing. But in Western spirituality, it's almost like a prize. It's a, it's a good thing, uh, but that is not how karma and um, uh, reincarnation work in classical Eastern religion. Mm -hmm. when, we, when we think about the rise of people using karma and understanding Eastern ideas and Westernizing them, what do you think one of the main driving forces for that, for that is? Well, I think that there is, uh, that's a great question. I think that what goes on is that there are... Um, there are Christian, we're, 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 we're importing Eastern ideas and mix, mixing them with, with Christian ideas because of a Christian, uh, sort of a culturally Christian misunderstanding of the idea of you reap what you sow. And so we see a, a, a similar-ish uh, principle in, um, in Christianity of this idea of you reap what you sow. Um, <clears throat> and then we hear ideas of karma, we misunderstand those and say, oh, well, that's very similar to what a Christian might say or what the Bible might say, is that what goes around comes around. Um, and that, I, I don't know if that phrase is born out of, in the West, out of the idea of karma or not, but I do believe it's one of these things where people either hope it's true or want it to be true. And so you can see this mishmash happening where there's this Christian idea of reaping what you sow. There's mm -hmm. this cultural idea of, um, of uh, uh, what goes around comes around. And then there's this Eastern idea of karma will visit you in your next life. And so we mash them together and we create this new sort of uh, sort of Westernized dish that we offer up uh, in various Western spiritualities. 
I think another another aspect though to this, Lisa, is um, <clears throat> that there is a uh, a sort of a Western um, tendency to want to import the exotic in terms of spirituality uh, into um, the Western experience. And so we've come to think of Christianity as sort of the same old thing. It's just, mm -hmm. yeah, that's the religion of you know, dusty old people who wrote a dusty old book and all this stuff. And it's the kind of religion for my grandmother or my grandfather or my great grandfather, um, whatever it might be. But this, you know, when you have various celebrities who are, who are really sort of touting sort of this westernized Eastern mysticism, uh, whether it's Deepak Chopra, Oprah Winfrey, um, uh, Eckhart Tolle, other folks like this, now it sounds exotic and it sounds almost new. So it's old and it has the mystique of ancient because we sort of love that, but it's new because it's not the Christianity we grew up with. And mm -hmm. so it plays on that. And um, it's interesting because C.S. Lewis made, made a point um, in screw tape letters where the, the, the senior demon is, is, is instructing the junior demon on how to lure people away from Christianity. He says, play on their horror of the same old thing. Play mm. on their horror of the same old thing. People will grow tired of the same old thing. So make Christianity look like the same old thing, but give them something spicy, something, something new and exotic. And, and uh, maybe they'll, 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 they'll really grasp for it. And I think they really try to grasp for it. Uh, so I think that's part of what's going on here is there is an importation of that which is exotic, a rejection of that which seems old and mundane. Um, and I think <laughs> the irony is that that allure is based on um, a misunderstanding of both Christianity classically as the Bible teaches it and uh, reincarnation and karma and all these ideas as Eastern spirituality has taught it. So we misunderstood both and created sort of a Frankenstein's monster of uh, a spirituality where we mix them together and think that somehow we take, you know, these different parts of different things, run an run electrical current through it and think we created something new. Mm -hmm. that, that's helpful because as we're thinking about like what we're going to talk about also in this, the Trinity, mm -hmm. uh, I see people doing a similar thing with understanding uh, Allah and the trinity and thinking you know g these gods are the same we're all saying the same thing just using different terminology yeah um have you seen that play out even in people's understanding of trinity or the godhead um yeah absolutely in fact you know what's interesting is that as we speak about hinduism for example there is a triad of gods in hinduism there is brahman vishnu and shiva and their different roles. Uh, and um, they're all sort of incarnations of the impersonal absolute. Uh, Brahman is the creator, uh, Vishnu is the sustainer, and Shiva is the destroyer. And um, Vishnu is the most loved of those three um, and incarnates himself in various ways, whether it's um, in the Bhagavad Gita um, th uh, or in various ways where you see sort of incarnations of Vishnu. Um, and that looks kind of Trinitarian. Uh, so we say, oh, that's very similar. Or say, okay, the, the, the Islamic concept of Allah is, you know, because Allah literally in Arabic means the God. That's what it means. Uh, and Arab Christians all over the world uh, for centuries and centuries have used the word Allah to refer to God. And so somehow these labels or these superficial similarities suggest to us that um, they're all really the same uh, on a fundamental level when really they're just, they're, they're the same maybe on a skin deep level, 
but really they're actually quite different. So I think that that does play out um, in understanding that. I mean, look, I think about this. I remember uh, there was a guy who was trying to convince me that all religions basically, every human being in their spirituality has a version, an incomplete version of the truth. Now, in some ways he's right. Look, none of us have the, all the truth because if we knew all the truth, then we would know everything. And if we knew everything, we would be God. And outside of Hinduism, I don't think anybody actually believes that they are, you know, in terms of their doctrine, a God. So I agree, I'm not a God. And this guy agreed, we're not gods. So we have incomplete uh, understandings of the truth, but that doesn't mean we all have equally incomplete understandings of the truth. And so basically what he was trying to do was get me to say, all religions are equally the same. And that sort of connotes a respect for all different religions and people who hold them. The problem with that is it actually doesn't convey that. It conveys a disrespect. Because if I were to tell a Muslim, and I came from that background, if I were to tell a Muslim, you and I believe the same things about God. It's true, we believe that there's only one God. It's true, we believe that that God is the uncreated being, the only uncreated being. And it's also true that we believe that that God is the judge of all the earth and, um, is the the source of morality and all that stuff. That's true. However, we have significant differences of belief about God when it comes to the Trinity, because a Muslim believes that God is one in his nature and one in his person. There is no distinction within him whatsoever. But the Christian believes that God is one in his nature and yet three in his persons, having three sort of divine centers of consciousness, each the same being, but three different personhoods or centers of consciousness. And so there aren't three gods, there's just three personhoods or minds within that God, um, as the Bible teaches. Um, so that's very different. In fact, it's considered blasphemous in Islam to believe that God is a trinity. So when you say all religions basically teach the same thing about God, you're actually not respecting them because you have to give them what I what, what many have called the dignity of difference, the dignity to say, I take your worldview so seriously that I'm willing to say it's different than mine and our differences make a difference and we can come together and talk about those things, but let us not fool ourselves into believing that while we do have some common ground, of course we do, we have to acknowledge we do have some major differences as well. Yes, that is extremely, extremely helpful. Um, I'm going to ask you just a, a easy question. Mm -hmm. Explain the Trinity for our audience. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was pretty that was pretty sly. Um, yeah, the easy question is to explain explain uh, the Trinity, uh, the very nature of God. You know, it's interesting because I think that we can actually describe it uh, quite well. And uh, years ago, I heard someone say I was listening to a radio broadcast that we can apprehend the Trinity but we can't comprehend the Trinity. And this not, mm -hmm. ought not to bother us. When I say comprehend, it comes even from that idea of comprehensive, to have full knowledge of something. So it shouldn't surprise us that we don't have comprehensive knowledge of God because God is the seat of all of existence. He is the eternal one who would never began and will never end. He just simply exists and in him is all knowledge, all power and all these things. So for me to say I can comprehensively understand him is not only prideful on my part, but utterly deluded uh, as well. But we can't apprehend. In other words, we can understand him in a way that does not require us to defy logic. It may transcend understanding, but it doesn't defy logic. So how I, I would describe the Trinity, and I, I, I tend to shy away from analogies, 
I don't mm-hmm. like talking about the Trinity through analogies because they tend to lead to heresy. Um, uh, uh, whether it's the ice, uh, water, and steam analogy, uh, any one body of water is not simultaneously steam and liquid and solid. Um, it's It exists in those modes, which is a heresy called modalism because God is always the Father. He is always the Son, and he's always the Holy Spirit. He's not one one time, then another, then another time, and another, another time. That's a heresy, as but an example. So I prefer to go through the concepts. So the, the Trinity teaches us that there is one God, that God is one in his nature. There is one what. God is one what. Um, uh, so if I were to, for example, hold up my phone, and I were to ask the question, what is this? What is it in its nature? Well, the answer uh, can be a lot of things. Machine, uh, computer, uh phone. I mean, no one makes calls on these, these machines anymore, but um, it, is, it is a phone, I guess. Uh, but basically, it's a non-living thing. It's got a whatness. It's got a nature to it, non-living thing. I have a nature as well. You can say, what is that referring to me? It's somewhat insulting, but it can be said. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a nature. I have a whatness, and my nature is living thing or human being, whatever it might be. But you can't say about the phone, who is that? I don't mean who's on the phone. I mean, who is this machine? Because it has no personhood. And this is an important distinction because when we say God is three persons, we tend to think about the word person in the sense of a singular being because we think of human beings as a singular person, a singular human being. That's not what I mean. What I mean by personhood and what has classically been meant by this in terms of the Trinity is a center of consciousness. A, a, a mind that interacts with other minds and the outside world. So the phone doesn't have a who-ness or a personhood, but I do. I have the person of being Abdu. So I have a whatness. I have a nature, which is living thing. And I have personhood, which is who I am. The phone only has nature. So if we say God is one in his nature and three in his persons, because the concept of nature and personhood are distinct things. It's not a contradiction to say God can be one in his nature and three in his persons. So logic actually allows for the Trinity. It allows for God to be one being with three centers of consciousness. Now, are we going to get that 100%? Well, the answer is no, of course not, because we're a unipersonal being. We have one nature and one personhood. So we can't really understand what it's like to be tri-personal because we aren't tri-personal. Similarly, I can describe eternity. We can talk about either mathematically or conceptually what it means to never have begun. But can you really grasp it? And the answer is no, because we began. We, we swim in the stream of, of time, which has its own point of beginning. And so to try to understand an, a completely eternal being would be futile because we swim in the sea of time and we can't know what it's like to be dry outside of that sea because we simply don't exist that way. So I think the Trinity is one God in three persons. It's not one God in three gods or one person in three persons. Those are both contradictory ideas. It's one God in three persons. And I think that not only does the Bible teach it, but Logic allows for it. It's not contradictory, but I think that good theology actually requires God to be a tri-personal being. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. What do you think is the biggest obstacle to to people conceptualizing the Trinity? What do you think you know prevents people from believing 
in the triune God. Yeah, I, I think I think a big stumbling block is the idea that this whole person distinction is that sometimes language can be a huge barrier. It can be a huge help sometimes too, but it can be a huge barrier because when we think of the word person, we do think of an insular being. And so mm-hmm. I remember as a Muslim, I thought the Trinity was one of the silliest ideas that the, the, the world had suddenly believed in for reasons I couldn't understand. Uh, until I began to study the Trinity itself. And when you understand that nature-personhood distinction, I think that really helps. I also think that the the analogies we've used to describe the Trinity have, they've had a very, I won't say a detrimental impact, but it hasn't been super helpful because it's, it's fostered a misunderstanding among Christians about what the Trinity, how to articulate what the Trinity actually is. So I think that's why people have a hard time with it. I know Muslims have a hard time with believing in the triune God because of their reverence for God. They think that this idea of three persons would actually create helpers for God. So if God the Father is God, why does he need the Spirit and the Son to help him? If he was truly God, he would need no help. And yet the Trinity suggests that he has help. So these are stumbling blocks not based on a desire to misunderstand, but on a desire to actually want to worship God in a valuable way and in a way that doesn't insult him. And that's how I did it. But I think the way to breach that barrier is to show people that the Trinity isn't, and I'm going to quote Greg Kokel on this, the Trinity isn't a problem to be solved. It is a solution to the problem. And how I saw it was like this, is that if there is a God, and by definition, I think God would be the greatest possible being, sort of a St. Anselm kind of a view on this. Um, uh, He would be the greatest possible being. So that means that he would be eternal. He would be the only uncreated thing. It also means that he would be, um, uh, he would need nothing to be who he is fundamentally. He would be, he would need nothing to be who he is. And in many conceptions of God, God is personal. He's moral. He's relational. Uh, he is merciful. He is just. He is kind. He is compassionate. These are all relational words. So follow me. Here's, here's the distinction. If God is the only uncreated being, so he exists, there was a, there was a, there was a, a, a state of affairs in which God was the only being who existed before angels, before heaven, before all that stuff. But he's also relational. In order to be relational, you have to be relational towards someone or something. Compassion requires the compassionate one and the one on whom compassion is given. Kindness is exchanged that way. Love is exchanged that way. So if God is uncreated and he is alone, but he's also relational and it's fundamental to who he is, then he must create something outside of himself in order to be compassionate or loving to that thing. In other words, he would need something else to exist to be who he is. The Trinity solves the issue because because in the Bible, God exists eternally as one being, eternally as Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Father loving each other. So God exists in the eternity of relationship. He doesn't lack relationship. He defines relationship, and that makes sense of him. So I think that if we're trying to breach the barrier that people have where they say, I don't understand it, or it sounds a little bit like tritheism to me. If we go to a conception of what the Trinity actually teaches, and then we not only go from the conception and the logic, but now we go to the necessity 
that this explains a God who is truly great, a God who needs nothing because he is a being in relationship. And the beautiful part about this is that not only does he define relationship, but he creates you and me, not so that he can have relationship. He already has that and he has it perfectly. He creates you and me so that we can have relationship with him and be blessed by that communion with the living God. And that's selfless. That's a selfless love. And so the Trinity makes selfless creation possible. Wow, that's super, super helpful and a very helpful way to, to for our audience to understand it. If we would think about uh, these two topics, uh, karma, the Trinity, I know they're not on the same page. Uh, we try, even though I tried to tie them together at some point, uh, the transition over. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything else uh, as our final question that you would say on these topics that we haven't covered that you think is important for our audience to know? Yeah, um, I actually, I think that there is a, 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 a way to connect these two topics um, in, in the sense of this is that um, one way that karma actually exists uh, in a theological sense is that it's like Swami Vivekananda, for example, tried to use karma to get God off the hook when bad things happen to us or judgment or these kind of things. In other words, karma happens as a matter of consequence, not divine judgment. So God is not responsible for bad things happening in the world. It's just the way it is. Um, of course, that doesn't get God off the hook because he could actually change things if you wanted to, but it doesn't cause those things. The reason why I say that is this, is because the reason why I love speaking about the Trinity so much, it's my favorite topic to talk about, is because all other Christian doctrines make sense because God is triune. So I believe in penal substitution, which means that Jesus represented me on the cross. He was in my place and he was judged for my sin and for the sin of the world on the cross. He was, substitute, he, he, he was substituted for me and then punished as if he were me. And um, he pays my debt. Now, someone might say, well, if Jesus is God, if God the Son is God and God the Father is God, well, then when Jesus makes the payment on the cross, it's not really a transaction. It's just shifting money from your right pocket to your left pocket. You're just under the illusion that a payment was made. But the Trinity actually makes sense of this because if the Father and the Son share the same nature as being divine, but the Son is a distinct personhood of the Trinity from the Father, then when the Son on that cross makes that payment, it's actually real. It's not an illusion. It's not a fiction. It's a real payment. And so the Trinity, Father and Son, and then the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin so that we actually believe in what the Son has done for us, the Trinity makes the cross and the redemptive work on that cross possible. And then the Holy Spirit speaks to us so that he brings us to life to actually want to, want to um, accept, to, to, to realize what has been done for us and live in the freedom of the payment on the cross. So the Trinity makes the cross make sense because a real transaction has happened. Why? How that factors into karma is that it frees us. It frees us from having to fix our lives by ourselves, is that God has freed us, not so that we can do whatever we want, but he has freed our spirits from the burden of trying to free ourselves so that we don't do things in order to get saved, 
we do things because we are saved. And so it's not to prevent bad karma in the next life that we do good deeds. It is simply in gratitude to the God who has saved us. And so I think the Trinity, karma, payment, all of these things coalesce and the cross is the place where they do so, I think so beautifully. Wow, that's so, so helpful. Thank you so much, Abdu. Um, can, uh, let our audience know how they can get in contact with you on social social media. Yeah, uh, so I am on social media. I'm Abdu Murray12 on Instagram, uh, Abdu Murray on Twitter, uh, and uh, I'm also on Facebook. Uh, hopefully one of these days I'll figure out TikTok and beyond that as well. Uh, but yeah, those are my socials. Abdu Murray, uh, all one word, um, A-B-D-U-M-U-R-R-A-Y on Twitter. Uh, Abdu Murray one, two uh, on Instagram and Abdu Murray uh, on Facebook. I have a public figure page there so you can get a hold of me that way. Awesome. Well, I think your first TikTok should be explaining the Trinity. Uh, <laughs> great idea. <laughs> great I idea. think that would go far. <laughs> That's a great idea. That you just might see that one, the first one. I gotta do it. Is there a limit to the time on TikTok videos? I think uh, so. They just expanded that. I think you have three minutes now. So oh, a whole three you, minutes. If one you minute can explain the Trinity in, in three minutes, you might go viral. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. That would be great. Well, thank you for, for joining us. Y'all, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. Remember, you can watch all of our podcasts on the Jew 3 Project website at Jew3Project.org. You can become a monthly partner. As I always say, every gift helps equip at Jew3Project.org backslash donate. You have the option to give online or mail in uh, your contribution to us. Remember to get our curriculum through Eyes of Color. Take an online course. Um, and get uh, get registered for our event January 20th in Chicago, Problematic Passages with Dr. Joe Vitale and Dr. Esau McCauley. You don't want to miss that. You can register for that at problematicpassages.com. Remember here at the G3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Until next time, grace and peace and God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching jude 3 project and it'll be right there for you so thank you again remember if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver you can do so on our website or by mail just go to jude3project.com hit that donate tab and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online we appreciate you and i'm so so thankful for you God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.